55% of our analysts think that in 12 months' time, the business cycle will have turned positive. We've got analysts really talking about the fact that, yeah, okay, we may go through a bit of a downturn, but we will emerge from that relatively quickly. Hello. Just how confident do chief executive officers feel about the year ahead? Do they really expect earnings to grow? Is reaching carbon net zero still a priority for them? Well, for answers to these questions and many more, we've asked 152 of Fidelity International's investment analysts for their views, and we've brought it all together into the annual analyst survey. Now, what they tell us offers not just a detailed picture of where the world is now, but where it will be. The analysts know what the management teams of over two and a half thousand companies across the world are planning, creating a bottom-up view of the way they expect the year to unfold. In this podcast, I'm joined by some of Fidelity's experts to dig through the results. And you might notice a little technical fault on my recording, but my guests more than make up for it. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, with me today are Fiona O'Neill, Head of Strategic Initiatives for Global Investment Research, and Gita Bal, Global Head of Fixed Income Research. Welcome to you both. Hi, Richard. Hi, Richard. Now, there's little doubt from economists that 2023 is expected to be another tough year, but our analysts paint a more hopeful, albeit nuanced, picture. So I'd like to begin by asking you both, what stood out most for you from the survey? I'll kick off. I think there were three things that really struck me out of the survey. One was, as you've already alluded to, there's there's quite a lot of optimism about the future. Um, and I think that gives us a lot of heart. The second thing is for someone who's been in markets for quite some time, it's quite nice to see us returning to normal cycles. Like not everything has to be a global financial crisis or a multi-year COVID crisis or, <laughs> you know, what, we've got analysts really talking about the fact that, yeah, okay, we may go through a bit of a downturn, but it, we will emerge from that relatively quickly, um, as some of us remember from the very distant past, it sometimes feels. Yes. So you're, you're describing there, just, just to put it into context, a little bit of a, it's like cod liver oil of the economic cycle. A bit of recession is good for us. Is that the point? I, well, I think so. I think it's just also good to see that we can have a bit of recession instead of like, full-blown crisis where, where every central bank in the world needs to, to, to take action. I think the final thing that I really took heart from is, is we did ask quite a few sustainability questions in this, and, and we'll ask more about that this year when we go into a sustainability-focused survey. Um, but I guess what I just took heart from was the ongoing commitment to ESG um, across regions, across sectors. Um, this is not a flash-in-the-pan trend regardless of what some of the popular press is saying, this is something that we continue to see a meaningful commitment to. So it's uh, it's bending um, only a little in the political winds, perhaps. Um, and Fiona, what about you? What's, what uh, struck you most as you review the, I mean, I'm, we had hundreds of charts that came out of this survey. So what's stuck in your mind? We had 107, Richard, and there are <laughs> three that I'm going to really call out, I guess, um, picking up a little bit what Gita said, there were only a handful of analysts who think that we are going to see a deep recession, even those who are talking about recession are talking about a shallow recession. And I think one of the biggest headlines is the fact that, you know, 55% 
of our analysts think that in 12 months' time, the business cycle will have turned positive. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean they're saying that there aren't going to be bumps in the road in 2023. But if we can look out to the end of 2023 and to when we're having this conversation in a year's time, I think we, you know, based on what the analysts are saying, we have cause for optimism that we will be in a much better place. And that's the headline, isn't it? We've said on that, uh, that this is the light at the end of the tunnel. We're going to have to go through a tunnel. And Gita thinks it's a shallow one that's good for us. Um, <laughs> but, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. And, and, and maybe just continuing that theme, the second thing that I was going to draw out was uh, the outlook for costs. Um, the bulk of our analyst team, in fact, 60%, think that cost pressures in the system will have peaked by the end of Q1. Now, that's not to say that we're going to be in a deflationary environment, but just if we pause and think about what the response is saying, peak of cost pressure by the end of Q1. Again, I think that's cause for hope, for optimism, for us to be seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. And then the final thing that I will say is just what Gita said on the ESG. I just want to pick up on that. You know, I was personally really surprised by the results, you know, um, the majority of analysts saying that their companies have at the very least maintained their focus, if not increased their focus and commitment to ESG through 2022. And I think it would have been easy for, for companies to step away and refocus a little bit on fundamentals in a year that was so tough that, you know, was filled with inflationary pressures, uh, questions about end demand, uh, a war in between Ukraine and Russia. Um, the fact that that commitment to ESG has stayed and perpetrated, you know, through uh, all of the discussions that were happening last year, I think is just a really encouraging message to take. I think we're very grateful for that encouragement, um, Fiona. Thank you for that rundown as well. And before we go any further, because we're, we're going to go into some of those points in a little bit more detail as we um, uh, carry on through the discussion. But can you take us through how the survey is put together? We've got 107 graphs out of it at the end. What went in? How did we approach the analyst to, um, uh, to, to get this data? So it's, it's an annual survey. This is the 10th year that we have run it. Uh, we uh, send out a survey of 40 plus questions to our analysts to be completing in December before before we uh, break for holidays and a, and a time to recover from all that the year has dealt us. Um, it's 152 analysts across equities, fixed income and private credit who are completing this. And actually, we have responses across 171 sectors because some of our analysts are covering more than one sector. And I think the other point is we're asking our analysts a combination of two things, what they are thinking, and also we're asking them to report what they are hearing from management teams, you know, report the discussions with regard to confidence, earnings expectations as they are being shared with them in their um, many engagements with the management teams of the companies that, that we follow. I think what's really unique about this is it's truly global that we are getting analysts focused on Asia, on Europe, on the emerging markets, and of course on North America. Um, but we're also getting the viewpoint from, from both equity and fixed income and private credit analysts. And that fixed income and private credit element means that we are hearing from a large number of management teams that don't have listed equity. 
that may not be sharing their insights with that many other competitors that can be captured in a survey like this. So, so really quite special to all of us here. About two and a half thousand companies covered, I think. And it's that span and the, the quantity um, that goes into it, I think, adds to the robustness, doesn't it? Now, uh, I've mentioned already that uh, the title of this year's survey is Light at the End of the Tunnel. Uh, we know that company management boards are in damage control mode at the moment as higher prices and higher interest rates drive many economies into recession. But more than half of our analysts expect the business cycle for their companies to turn more positive within the year, as Fiona was alluding. But we're going to hear from two of those analysts now. We are just about to enter the late cycle and the things will get worse before they get better off. On the contrary, when you look at the consumer confidence, actually what you see is that the consumers believe they will be better off in the next 12 months than in the last 12 months, and this is a great sign. Um, for me, really what we see is light at the end of the tunnel for the financial space is really slightly different from, from other sectors that we look at in the non-financial corporate space. Really for us, the financials and particularly banks are really starting from a much higher and better and stronger position than, than maybe other sectors. The reason for that is banks have undergone a fairly significant structural shift uh, since the great financial crisis to really shore up their balance sheets and improve regulatory capital and, and liquidity ratios. That was uh, European consumer analyst Serhat Biblin and financials analyst Michael Gaynor speaking there. Now, Gita, um, another point that stood out for me in the survey was that three quarters of our analysts say that their CEOs expect earnings to grow over the next 12 months. Now, what is it that's behind that growth, do you think? What do they say will drive it? Yeah, I think, look, there's a lot of factors that they think that they're going to um, see driving their growth. But I think one that probably gets overlooked in this kind of wait, you're saying things are good, but you're also saying things are quite challenging in this environment, is that we are in an inflationary environment for the first time in many decades. And as a consequence, even if the volumes that people are consuming go down, the prices are going up. And so what you end up seeing is higher revenues and often higher earnings purely driven by that inflationary impact on results. Can I just add, I mean, I think Gita's absolutely spot on and you only have to look back at the more recent results of retailers who have posted their, their Christmas trading updates, you know, the, the role that inflation has played. But what really stood out to me is that 44% of uh, our analysts are reporting that their CEOs are talking about seeing demand growth coming through. So there's either order backlogs or now that the supply chains are starting to ease, you know, they can think about meeting that demand and and customers, end customers can have the confidence to be placing orders. That's the that's the normalization that Gita was referring to at the top. Exactly. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the first thing that would spring to mind. You know, certainly as we enter 2023, I don't think we expected <laughs> that we would be sitting here talking about demand growth. No. Uh, so I think it's really important just to just to flag that as something that's come out of the survey. OK, and you've talked about inflation and, uh, of course, alongside that, we've got uh, rising interest rates. Gita, to what extent is the cost of debt weighing on companies or how will that pattern change as we go through the year based on what the survey is telling us? Our analysts across the board are seeing financing costs going up over what I would call the, the medium term. In certain pockets, you're seeing increasing financing rates in 2023. 
But in many places, that is in 2024 or even in 2025 and beyond. Um, so we are seeing the impact of financing rates, but we do have um, in the developed markets of the West, what we've seen over the past more than a decade is companies terming out their debt in a cheap financing environment. And that means that their maturity profiles are not as front end loaded and the impact of central bank rate rises will not be as profound. Now, that's the general overall picture. But what our analysts are also telling us across regions and across uh, sectors, with the exception of China, is that default rates are going to pick up. Because while on average, most companies don't have an immediate debt problem, there are companies that we're going to see, and it'll be a small percentage of them, that will not be able to cope with those rising rates at the time that they are falling. And as such, we should see higher defaults um, in, in most places. Now, uh, we have another important source of gauging sentiments amongst CEOs, and that's Fidelity's own, because Anne Richards was at the World Economic Forum in Davos a week or so back, and it was fascinating to see a mood in Davos emerge as the meeting got underway. And I asked her what her peers were saying. The CEOs think that maybe the worst case scenarios for 2023 that we were all quite fearful about in the fourth quarter in a really deep recession, that the chances of that, they've not completely gone away, but they have receded. I think the fact that there's been some easing up in the supply chain, I think the fact that China is reopening and obviously making its contribution into that supply chain bottleneck, um, you know, maybe faster than expected, I think is making people just feel it's a little bit easier at the margin than they anticipated. I don't think anyone thinks 2023 is going to be easy, but at the margin, maybe... There's a little bit more resilience than they expected. I have to say that in terms of how that translates through to markets, because of the point I made earlier about monetary policy and the difficulty in calibrating that, I think we shouldn't assume that it will be safe an easy ride in markets. It's not going to be a straightforward year, I think. We may test the lows again, but I suspect that we will come out of 2023 in a slightly more stable position and maybe slightly more optimistic than perhaps we came into it, you know, two, three weeks ago. Fidelity International's chief executive, Anne Richards, speaking to me earlier. Now, Fiona, all that confidence that she's describing, is that going to translate into more or bigger M&A, mergers and acquisitions? Not according to the results of the survey. And I, and I think we can understand that by, by thinking back to what Gita said uh, on, you know, cost of debt, uh, what that means, not just in 2023, but 24 and 25. You know, balance sheets are likely to shrink, but if the cost of the debt that is on the balance sheet and the cost of any debt required to finance deals is going to go up, then I think that's going to give rise to a little bit more caution uh, with regard to the size of the deals. Um, I think what stands out from the survey is that there has been a mark shift where in previous years, some regions have talked about M&A uh, being prevalent, other regions have been less optimistic. But what stood out to me this year is there is not a single region uh, where the analysts are expecting an increase in M&A. And if we look at the free text answers uh, and the e explanations for how why they're filling the survey in as they are, what we can see is that the analysts are saying that you know, that's not to say that no M&A is going to happen, but where it is going to happen, it's it really is likely to be extremely strategic, uh, much more bolt on acquisitions rather than 
transformational deals. Okay, um, important point to note. Well, we're going to change direction now and um, turn to China. Um, it's important to note that the responses for this survey were collected just as the Chinese government was lifting COVID restrictions in December, the end of the zero COVID policy. But despite the challenges that those policy changes have posed to authorities, and of course the human toll facing large segments of the population, our analysts remain confident that the country is poised to bounce back in the year of the rabbit. Now, let's hear from one of our analysts covering China. Vivian Wang is a technology analyst. She's based in Hong Kong. And here are her thoughts on what the time frame for that recovery uh, might look like. As far as I can observe from the companies I'm covering, um, we may see the recovery of the supply side to come sooner than the demand side. Most of the companies under my coverage are fully back to normal, their business operation, business travel, as well as their production. Whereas on the demand side, I would expect it will take a bit longer than the supply to recover and pick up. But the good thing is we have seen some early signs. For example, uh, in China, the smartphone sales in the first week of January is a pretty positive surprise. And hopefully that can continue after Chinese New Year and we are keeping an eye on it. And that was Vivian Wang speaking. Gita, overall, what does the survey tell us about the coming year for China? Well, Richard, as you and Vivian have already highlighted, the sense of optimism was very palpable amongst our respondents um, in China. And one of the things that I would highlight is that we had 27 uh, different analysts contributing their insights on China. That's almost 20% of the total survey response. People were clearly excited about the reopening, about the normalization that they knew was about to come and that we've now um, seen in the past couple of months. Um, so clearly there are some strong um, both year over year and quarter over quarter growth drivers. There's also far less uncertainty um, with some of the lockdowns we saw on um, various cities in 2022. So I think a lot to be excited about. Um, and I think it's not dissimilar to what we saw in many other parts of the world as we reopened from COVID, the, the very rapid consumer um, enthusiasm for, for an open world, um, the, the kind of dipping into savings that had accumulated over, um, over the COVID period. So um, a lot of that is, is going to be incredibly positive. But I guess if we're thinking about the slightly further into the distance period, I think we have to recognize that there continue to be um, pressures in the China property sector, which has been a massive source of GDP over a multi-year period. And I think the Chinese government itself would like to see China be a much more balanced economy in the future to be more consumer-led and, and perhaps less property and industrials and, and financing-led. And so I think that transition will probably take a little bit longer and will move in more, um, you know, fits and starts as opposed to this kind of overall exuberance that we're seeing in the very near term. Hey, just quickly, I want to put a new podcast in your pocket, one I think should interest you. We hear a lot about greening the planet, boosting welfare, and ensuring things are run properly and fairly. But how are the people running big business actually making that happen? I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research at Fidelity International. I oversee a worldwide team of 180 analysts whose bread and butter is to have continuous dialogue with management teams of the companies we invest in to ensure they're running their companies well. 
And for us, sustainability, in all its forms, is a critical component of that mission. I want to bring you, the listener, into those conversations to hear how chief executives are balancing the needs for profits with the sometimes competing needs of our environment, communities, and other stakeholders. The show is called Trade-Offs, and you can find it on the Fidelity Answers podcast. Just search Fidelity Answers or check for a link in the show notes. I really think you're going to like it. Well, I'm going to move to another major section now, which is sustainability. And you both talked about this in the introduction, that despite the economic and geopolitical turbulence, the survey suggests that ESG has not fallen off the radar for companies. That's encouraging, isn't it, Gita? It definitely is. I think I think the sustainability questions um, are, are some of the ones that I find most heartening in, in what was a pretty optimistic survey. And look, we've asked our analysts how... Is there, you know, how much focus is there on ESG credentials communication as distinct from ESG credentials implementation? And what we found is the majority of our analysts are saying that that companies are still focused on ESG. Similarly, in light of all the news that we saw, particularly in the U.S. in the past year, we asked the question, are we seeing a decreasing emphasis on ESG anywhere in the world? And the answer was that 90% of our analysts said absolutely not. And it's only perhaps in some of the the most hard-hit emerging markets in in the Middle East, Africa, uh, Eastern Europe, and, and Latin America, where Obviously, some some very big geopolitical issues are afoot where we saw any kind of split in that focus. So what this tells us is that companies are remain very committed to our uh, carbon transition. They continue to focus on this as an area. And, and I think sometimes we give um, short shift to the S and the G when we're talking about ESG. So I just wanted to highlight um, one big regional difference. Um, in the U.S. in the past year, there's been a lot of um, public scrutiny on ESG and how it's being used. And, and what I found really interesting is even our North American analysts are not seeing any meaningful decrease in ESG focus. That is despite what's happening in Florida with regard to social issues that have been in the press about Disney and what we've seen in places like Texas, which may have a heavy energy exposure and what they're talking about with respect to asset managers um, focusing on the E. So the companies in the U.S. are, are still kind of engaged on ESG as a theme um, as much or more than they were a year ago. And I, I think that's cause for real optimism. For me, I think there's something that stands out is is the questions that we asked about carbon neutrality and when companies are likely to hit net zero. Uh, And, you know, on the one hand, you've got the company saying that ESG really is a focus. I would take heart from the fact that I think a number of them are understanding much better now what it is going to take to achieve net zero and some of the other goals that they have. And so one could read the fact that only 22% of our analysts are expecting companies to get to net zero by 2030 as a negative. But I think, actually, I'd prefer that we focus on the fact that our analysts think that 68% of companies are going to reach net zero by 2050. I think that's a much more encouraging um, takeaway. And I think we can 
really take heart from companies are not just talking about it, but they're actually putting action plans, KPIs, task forces in place to ensure they, they're not just making these promises, but that they have a real understanding of what it is going to take to deliver. Um, I, I would echo that wholeheartedly. And, and look, if I look now at three years of data that we've had on 2030 plans, roughly, now we look at the trend, it's roughly the same. We've, we've been saying in the low 20% of companies are going to achieve net zero by 2030. And that's despite the fact that we're three years further into this journey. Our analysts believe that the plan seemingly that the companies that are going to be um, at the forefront at our, of our climate transition genuinely have the plans in place where they can achieve it. And, and I think as we look forward to 2040 and to 2050, if this ends up being our model, then there's probably a lot to be hopeful about in the future. Just to follow up on that point about companies understanding it, you know, when we talk about achieving net zero, what comes through loud and clear in uh, the survey is that, you know, this is not now just an issue for energy companies uh, or industrial companies. This is something that the financial sector needs to be much more aware of. You know, banks are setting up task forces. They have to start asking the questions about what they're prepared to fund and not fund. So I think the debate has just simply moved on uh, uh, and moved on in a, in a very positive way. And then the final point I'd make is that what happened last year, particularly with the situation in Russia and Ukraine, I think has underscored the complexity and it's underscored the energy trilemma. It's not just about going greener. It's about ensuring that we have a secure energy supply, that we have clean energy, and that we have affordable energy going forward. And that is where the detail comes in. So we've discussed the key takeaways from the survey, but how can investors synthesise these views? And I asked Global Equities Portfolio Manager Ashish Kocha precisely that a little bit earlier. Ashish, welcome to you. Um, now, I know that you're a global equity investor with a bottom-up approach to stock picking. So how does all of the research that Fidelis' analysts um, have done, how does that feed into your investment process? Global equities is a stock picker's paradise. Uh, you know, there is no one person who can do the global equities market, right? So we're quite blessed in that manner that Fidelity has developed one of the largest research operations. So, you know, this bottom-up approach right, of, you know, having these local touch points uh, across the global value chain is quite helpful, uh, you know, in, in both idea generation and I would say, you know, being a risk manager at heart, if I'm honest, it helps us in kind of uh, avoiding the related risks and kind of just seeing in, in, in this interconnected world. Uh, my philosophy, as you've rightly mentioned before, right, is one of an owner-operator, uh, almost like a private equity approach, right, so, uh, and have a huge quality bias there. So I guess, you know, talking to the fidelity experts uh, helps me do that in-depth industry work, really understand those business models, uh, and, you know, invest behind these higher quality businesses. And I think that 
uh, is really helpful for my concentrated investment approach. So fair to assume that these analysts are like North Star to me. Okay, good. Um, a guiding light uh, for you. And then looking specifically at the analyst survey, the headline, which has cropped up already um, quite a few times in this podcast, is the light at the end of the tunnel. So we need to get through 2023. But by the end of that, um, the survey seems to be indicating that, um, you know, things will be on the rebound. Um, does your outlook um, for this year and what what happens after that, does that match that slightly optimistic midterm View? The biggest question to my mind, and I think everybody's mind, is where does this interest rate settle? Four, five, six. We kind of we got the jobs report on Friday, right? And there were good reports as a result. You saw kind of you know the spike in kind of the yields higher, and 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 that I think is the the market's already discounting in like a soft landing or disinflation, and and if we keep getting data like that, then it's a it becomes really tricky because on one hand, you have on-the-ground data, which is still showing a lot of strength. and But on the other side, if the cost of capital keeps going higher, you know that you know there's like a negative multiplier that might happen in the economy and the consequent impact that's going to have on the business. And, and so there are a multitude of factors at play. So yes, you know, we, we are optimistic because, you know, we're trying to own these best business models. And when there is volatility in the market, it helps us own some of these best franchises at a discount. So we are quite happy about it in that manner. But if you're kind of viewing it over a very short term perspective, these are tricky times. Let's delve into some of the detail. And uh, the survey shows that a fifth of analysts see funding costs for their companies increasing materially over the coming year. And that number rises to about three quarters before the end of 2025. So there's a shoring up of balance sheets uh, almost across the board. Um, How do you interpret that? I think it was long overdue, right? Because what happened to the cost of capital during COVID times was not normal. Right? You had gone down to levels you know, you know, at few basis points, and that's why you saw this whole uh, bubble-like valuation around us in every single asset class, if I may you know, use that analogy. And so as a result, kind of bringing it back uh, to a more reasonable number is good because uh, you ultimately want there's some respect to the fiat currency and there's, you know, there, there's a certain amount of uh, you know, interest rate that's prevalent. Uh, but you can't really stretch it too far along, right? There was just this stat this morning which talked about that the the last 12, can, just the interest that's due on the U.S. debt is going to be touching a trillion dollars. That's almost like 3 4% of GDP. That's not a small number. That's going to materially weigh on how productive the economy is um, when, you're, when you're paying that much in interest on, uh, on debt. Yeah, that is correct. So this amount could then be used... Uh, you know, in, in different places in terms of infrastructure growth and the like. So uh, you ultimately don't want to be perennially running uh, a deficit in the economy because that's not good for your currency and the likes and, and various factors. You don't just look at the states. Um, you look across the world, um, which I'm sure part of uh, the fun of, of your job. And um, one aspect there, though, is that analysts expect there to be default rates um, rising in every region apart from China. In fact, China's reopening is a significant source of that light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Do you agree with that? Um, And have you seen any evidence of it yet? Yeah, you are right there. So this is the year of the rabbit. And as you well know that in the Chinese culture, a rabbit is associated with longevity and prosperity. So if you look around the globe, there's only one geography out there which will be in an expansion mode in 2023. So yes, there is 
a lot of optimism that you can you know see and especially coming out of you know three years of lockdown there is kind of that pent up demand and you've seen that with the luxury trade in the market and uh, you know tourism travel uh, consumer discretionary you know the research that we had in house we were able to take advantage of that uh, but i guess i'll just throw in a word of caution here that china today versus china of the past uh, there there are some structural you know nuances that one needs to be aware of the, the bit that i'm trying to highlight here is there's certain amount of fragileness which did not exist in the past so uh, you know it's all good and great for now that we're getting this accelerating data but uh, there's just one word of caution that i wanted to throw Ashish Kosha, thank you very much indeed. Back in the studio now, and we're almost at an end, but not before we play the rich pickings parlor game, hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? And Gita, you first, your hot cake, please. My hot cake, and it's going to come as no surprise since I'm head of um, uh, fixed income research, is to buy euro denominated investment grade credit. Um, Euro investment grade credit, um, what our lovely quant team has told us is that 70% um, of the time spreads over virtually every time period have been tighter than they are today. So very attractive in spread terms. And obviously with central bank moves that we've seen on a total return basis, they are also very attractive. In terms of my hot potato, um, I would like to just suggest that as we've kind of returned to normal, and that's been one of the themes that, that I've highlighted today, normal cycles, everything else, I, I think I'd like to, to return to, to a normal focus on things like governance in our um, investment allocation decisions when we're, we're picking companies. I think going back to the old nuts and bolts of, of what makes a good company, what puts in place the appropriate checks and balances, and I would drop anything that doesn't meet that standard. And Fiona, what about you? Your hot cake, please. Well, I'd like to paraphrase uh, one leading mining CEO uh, who said that we have 15 years to replace 200 years of thermal technology. And we are going to need every available technology to get there. Uh, and the pull that this is going to cause uh, on often quite immature supply chains, I think, provides us with um, a multi-decade opportunity, a multi-decade super cycle across a wide range of commodities. And so, you know, I think anything uh, that is related to transition materials that invests in commodities or, or the companies that are working on helping to achieve that transition uh, is going to be a really great place to be to be putting our money, uh, and particularly for companies who are doing that in a very ESG-aware way. Lovely. And what about your hot potato? Well, as all of my colleagues know, I'm the ultimate bear on the UK economy, um, but I'd call out specifically uh, UK retailers who, you know, to the point that we've discussed in this podcast, were absolutely helped out. Uh, over the Christmas period by inflation. You know, the recent cheerier than expected numbers should be read in the context of high inflation, so prices, but generally lower volumes. And I think the squeeze on consumer real incomes due to inflation and rising rates, and I note that just as we're recording this, the Bank of England has announced that it's raising rates to 4%. I think that, together with the fact that there is a bit of a hangover now, because people did go out and spend at Christmas, they wanted the first normal Christmas uh, in three years uh, post the pandemic. I think, you know, at some point, 
the man on the street is going to have to tighten his belt. And for that reason, uh, I will be putting my money outside of the UK this year. Okay, noted. Well, thank you very much indeed, Fiona and Gita. Thanks for joining me. Thanks also to Ashish Kocha and, of course, Fidelity's chief executive, Anne Richards. And none of this would have happened without the hard work and insight of the analysts themselves. So a heartfelt thank you to them. You can read the analyst survey in full on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then please do like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The producer today was Holly Eastman with technical support from Callum Blitz. But for now, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.